0: My name's Gail, and I'm alcoholic. Hi, Gail. I am wondering how I got here today. <laughs> and I think I know. By the grace of a loving God and the people in Alcoholics Anonymous praying me into these rooms. And for that, I'm truly grateful. Um, my life has changed, and I have changed. I'm not the same person I used to be i got a handkerchief because I'm a crier. Um, My sponsor is Nancy D. I have a home group on Tuesday nights at Mount Carmel at the Eastside Center. I was homeless for five years. Nancy said, you're homeless, get a home group. So I have a home group today, and uh, I have the greatest sponsor in the whole wide world, a woman that loved me from the second she set her eyes on me. And uh, for that, I'm truly grateful. I have a lot of a lot of folks here today that uh, I was sharing with Jim and Mark and and some other folks earlier today I said you know uh, all the years that I drank and I drugged I never had that many people in my life that I have today that are here for me and I'm overwhelmed when I look around the rooms and and see some wonderful people that have loved me. And guess what? I've learned to love them, too. Because when I came in here, I didn't have the ability to do that. Um, we'll go back to the basics, you know. They told me that uh, there's a few things. When I met my sponsor, she told me I had to do a couple things, and that was pray in the morning, read the book, go to meetings and pray at night and just don't drink. And by the time I made it to Alcoholics Anonymous, I was desperate enough to do the things that were suggested of me. And by the grace of a loving sponsor and a loving God, I have been able to celebrate six years of sobriety as of May, uh, what is this year? (laughs) I sobered up in May 16, 1998. You know, this morning I kept saying, okay, God, you know, come on, get up with me, come on, carry me through this, you know, and, and, uh, he, he has arrived. He's here right now, cause, uh, I don't feel like I did a few minutes ago. I'm, I'm grateful to be able to be His spokesperson today, because that's the reason why I'm here. And uh I got that big old ego thing going on, you know. I was chosen to be a speaker, I got to wear a, a blue ribbon, you know, I'm something special and and really what I am is um uh, I'm a spokesperson for God because uh this is what I have been chosen to do by the grace of God. He says to me, You get out there and you carry the message. And and my friend Gail told me today that I was a twelve step, you know. That, that, that's what my responsibility is and, uh, I am very grateful to be here. I, I love Alcoholics Anonymous. Um I grew up, Stacy, Stacy remembers me. I graduated from the Women's Recovery Addiction Program in Covington, Kentucky and, uh, I gave her some hell while I was there. She was the, one of the ladies that worked there and tried to drag me out of bed in the morning. I'm like, what? <laughs> you know, I am me. <laughs> So anyway, uh, thank you, Stacey. Um, I uh, am supposed to tell in a general way what I used to be like and what happened and what I'm like today, and I've already told you that I'm not the person I used to be. Um, I have four children, ages 16, 17, 25, and 27, and I bring up my children a lot. uh I whined for many years because I was a single parent, and if you were a single parent, you'd drink too. And, and if you had to work and take care of all these kids, you'd drink too. And if you had to do what I got to do, you drink too. And I used that excuse for probably 15, 20 years of my life, and uh, I got here by running out of excuses, you know. But I grew up in a little family uh, on the east side of town I'm a river rat a, a little town called New Richmond, Ohio And You know When we're growing up In a, a family uh, God I love being here Everybody just looks So damn bright You know You all wear bright colors And stuff And it's really nice I like those colors You have on <laughs> Anyway They told me That I'd start Sam told me Wait till you start Seeing the colors You know I, I'm seeing some colors today That's cool Anyway, um, I grew up in this little family, and I had a mom, and I had a dad, and I had some brothers, and I had a sister, and I had some good friends growing up in school, and uh, I remember when I was a little girl, Gail, my friend Gail's here today. She's known me all my life. She could probably tell you my lead better than I can, but uh, we used to play jacks, and we did the hula hoop, and uh, I remember the jumping thing where you put it around your ankle and you jump over the ball and life was good, you know. I was a, a very happy little girl and uh I grew up in this family and uh things happen in your family, you know. I've learned in alcoholics that uh, in alcoholics anonymous that the way you grow up you feel is pretty normal. You know, I really believe that I had a really normal household and everybody in it was normal and my sheets on my bed were clean and my dad worked every day and my brother one occasion said he loved me and my sister was all right, you know. I had a grandma and stuff. I had a grandpa. And uh I, I had a pretty normal family. We had a dog. And uh he, I think he bit Gail once. <laughs> he bit Janet. He, he used to bite. That should have told me something. We kept this collie around for like ten years, man. Everybody'd walk in the door he'd bite. and bite. And we'd just keep him and he'd just bite everybody. But anyway, I don't know where that came from. But uh I grew up in a really uh functional, dysfunctional family. And I remember uh I don't know if my dad was alcoholic or not, but uh I remember going into the bathroom and underneath the sink I'd find that empty bottle, you know, and underneath the car seats I'd find an empty bottle and I'd find empty bottles of liquor laying around all over the place, you know. So I've learned now that my dad drank every day, you know. But I don't ever remember seeing my dad drunk. He was not a violent man and not a belligerent man. And he worked every day and he took care of the family. My mom used to cook big meals. And she was uh, probably, if we would look at it now, a definite Al-Anon candidate. Because uh, she made our beds every day. She vacuumed every day and our house was spotless because my mom made sure it was. And I didn't know she was so sick, you know. She's just trying to take care of all of us and she did a good job at that. Um never heard a whole lot about uh God growing up. I do know that uh I attended the Catholic church and uh they spoke in Latin back then and I used to just get in trouble in church for talking so much and I never heard a word they said. I you know, I did a few Hail Marys I used to go to confession on Saturdays Because they told me I had to do that So I could take communion on Sunday So I remember I started lying, like, really early, you know I'd, I'd go into confession and say Bless me, Father, for I have sinned, you know And I was trying to make up some sins And I used to make up all these sins, you know And then I'd come out and I had to, I had a, a good reason to be able to go to confession, you know And that's the way I lived But I grew up in, um I had a pretty good life and uh elementary school was pretty cool you know I I won the uh the Easter Egg uh, Hat Contest. I won the Red, White, and Blue Bicycle Contest on the Fourth of July. And when I look back on that, I didn't do any of it. You know, my mom did it all. She <laughs> decorated my hat, decorated my bike. I won it all. I won the Halloween Contest. You know, for the be- most beautiful. And every when I was growing up, everybody always used to say, "Are you Chinese? <laughs> Are you Japanese?" So my mom dressed me up on Halloween like a Japanese woman. <laughs> so I won. I won the most beautiful. I was embarrassed, <laughs> but my mom did everything for me, you know, and, uh, she did everything for all of us. As I grew up, I uh, started junior high school, and life was good, uh, we had a pretty good family thing going on, you know, some incidents has happened in my family, but, uh, we swept them under the carpet, and we kept our mouths shut, and we didn't tell anybody, and that's how that went, and, uh, we put on a good front. Um, uh, junior high came, high school came, and, uh, knocked at the door one night, and, uh, police officer standing at the door, and he said, you know, I remember him telling my mother, he said, he said, you know, your son won't be coming home anymore. And I'm like, what's up with that? You know, I had a brother that was just about 16 months older than me, so him and I were tight. And then I had my two older brothers and my older sister, so it was like two separate little families. And uh, my brother was killed in a car accident uh, out on US 52 in Point Pleasant, Ohio. And I remember... The police officer saying, your brother won't be coming home anymore. And I looked at my brother, Steve, and we started laughing. And it was like, it's funny, you know, and I, it was that shock of something. I don't know what it was, but I immediately uh, picked up the lying and, and uh, making up stories. I remember I said, here's how we'll deal with this, you know. We'll just tell everybody he went away to college and he's never coming home. So I put my little pink dress on, and I went to his funeral, and I skipped around, and I was having some fun, you know, because I had convinced myself of that lie. So I never, I never suffered any grief, or I never suffered any pain of losing a family member until many, many years later. So that was the story of uh, how it began with my lying. I lied to everybody every day, all the time. I made up reasons why I was who I was. If you said, wow, I like your dress, I only paid five bucks for it. Well, I paid 25 for it, you know. And if I lied about everything and really didn't have any reason for it, you know. I don't know what I was trying to do. My dad used to say things like, uh, Gail, you're just like a chameleon. And everywhere you go, you know, and it's the truth. Because everywhere I went, I was just like you. And then I was just like you. And I was just like you. And I thought that was a really good quality about me, but what I learned was I had absolutely no clue who I was. I didn't know what my favorite color was. I didn't know really what I liked to wear. I just did what you did. And you liked me for it, and I appreciated it. So I was probably like the most popular person in school because I hung out with everybody and I loved y'all because I wanted you to love me back, and you did. Junior high came, high school came, you know, and I, I tried out for cheerleading, and I was the cheerleader in the ninth grade and, and in the tenth grade and in the eleventh grade and twelfth grade, and I was a real good cheerleader, you know. I, I I wanted to be. I loved school. I loved school. It was fun. And and I've got some teenagers right now, 16 and 17, that that don't like school, you know. And I just remember how happy I was at school. My freshman year... Age 15, I, uh, picked up that first drink and I picked up that first drug and I picked up another drink and another drug. And I liked alcohol and I liked it from the very beginning. It made me feel good and actually it made me feel like I fit in. So during the basketball games, you know, and after the basketball games and we drink and we party a little bit, no consequences. And then, uh, Pills started coming into my story. People bring pills to school and be like, okay, whatever that is, I'll swallow it and then ask you what it is. You know, and I can remember my senior year, I tried out for cheerleaders, passed out like eighth period when they announced who the winners were. So I, I didn't know I was a cheerleader until like that Monday morning. But um that's how life began for me. And, and I can look back on it now and think about from the day that I picked up that first drink, is the day that my life started deteriorating, and it was a long journey it was a real long journey and If I would have known then what I was in store for, you know, but anyway, we started this journey, and uh I moved away it was uh these people came from the f b i sounds important, don't it. And they came to school and they said who wants to go work for the FBI? And I said, I do. See, I was always one of those, I will. I'll do it. Who wants the haircut? I do. Who who wants to do this? I will. And and I was just one of those people, I'd do anything you want me to do. So they said, my mom and dad never said you gotta go to college and graduate four years and become somebody. They said you gotta get a job or something, you know. I think they said that. I didn't hear nothing my mom and dad told me, but anyway they came and uh on August the 19th, 1974, uh, my mom and dad drove me to Washington, D.C. and dropped me off at the Ebbett Hotel, and they said, good luck. <laughs> I'm like, okay. Uh, I'm working for the Federal Bureau of Investigation, you know, and I had a badge and stuff. And I was a clerk, and I made $5,280 a year. For some reason, that sticks in my mind. I have no idea. But think about it, you know? That's what they started me out at, and that was big money, you know? So I worked for this place called the FBI, and, and I'm thinking today, my god, there are a lot of convicts free because of me. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> so, I had to, I had to read fingerprints, you know, and I'd be all hung over, and the fingerprint card would be like, ah. Uh, Okay, he's passing, you know. And they let me to have this responsibility, and it was a big responsibility, and I didn't know what the heck I was doing. But I met some people that liked to drink and drug, like me, you know. And that was pretty cool. I had two roommates, and one of them was Diane, and the other one was Linda Horikawa. She was from Ohio, Hawaii, and we moved in together, and we started this little residence, you know. And I met the I met the guys in the FBI that liked to drink and drug, and and life became that way. Every Friday night, payday, you know, took my $87, and we drank, and we drugged. And uh, I had this uh, man on the back burner back in Ohio in case I needed him, you know, and and he was the uh, high school jock from the other high school in uh, Batavia High School, played basketball, good-looking man. And I I had him sitting back there waiting for me just in case I couldn't find anything in the FBI. (laughs) And uh, it was about two years later in the FBI, my, my friend Diana says, I'm going back to Pennsylvania. It's okay. And Linda says, well, I'm moving back to Ohio, uh, Hawaii. I said, well, then I'm going back to Ohio. See, because I was real immature and I was real scared and I didn't know how to take care of myself. I had absolutely no clue. I really believe, I think, that they were taking care of me. So we all packed up and I moved back to Ohio. And uh it wasn't long after that I found that high school sweetheart again and, I knew he still wanted me. He was waiting for me, you know. And uh, we started dating a little bit, and uh, next thing you know, I, my mom looks at me one day at the kitchen table, and she said, you know, I think you're pregnant. And my mom could have had, she had this, like, thing about her, you know. She could look at my eyes and tell me, and that's how she told me. And uh, I said, well, I think I might be. So my dad said, you know, you don't have to get married, Gail. You know, we'll, we'll be alright, we'll take care of that baby. And that was 27 years ago. And uh, so I said, oh no, I'm gonna do the right thing, you know. So we, we got married and, and I had a son and his name, his name's Jeremy. He's a good kid too. He's a good man. And uh, I had Jeremy and this guy named Scott, I'll use his name, Scott. He's an important person now. You know. Deadbeat dad, one of those. If you had a deadbeat father, you'd drink too, you know. If you weren't getting child support checks, you'd drink too. I used that for a long time. But anyway, uh, we had this little family, and I, I always had these good intentions, like, mm I have that little house with the white picket fence, you know, and a husband who loves me and somebody I can love. And see, he never loved me enough, on it. But you know, as I looked around in Alcoholics Anonymous, I didn't love him too much either, you know. I didn't know how to show him love. And he didn't know how to show me. We were two young people trying to, trying to act like adults. And, and he started not coming home on Fridays, and I started not coming home on Fridays, and we had this little boy, and, and life sucked, really. I mean, uh, drugs became a big part of our story. Alcohol was a big part of my story, and, uh, his two and little boy trying to raise him and he became two years old and three years old and I thought I got a solution. I'm gonna have another baby because I know what that does. That brings the family closer together and we will survive. See, I didn't have a problem with alcohol or drugs and neither did he. We just had a problem with communication, coming home from work, paying bills, going to work. You know, that was just our problem. Vacuum and you know, changing diapers. So I had this other child and I have a beautiful daughter today and her name is Valerie and she's 25 years old today. Um, my sobriety date is May of 1998 so it took me a long time to get this thing. And during this time I have absolutely no idea why I never lost my children. And sometimes I look back and think, it would have been better if I would have. Because I drove and drove and drugged and took my kids to pure hell. And for many years, I couldn't understand why they were whining about it, you know. I don't have a problem. You got a roof over your head, don't you? You know. So anyway, um, the marriage didn't last. And um, the drinking was getting bigger. The disease was progressing. The marijuana was there. The quaaludes were there. The vicodins were there. If you had two kids, you'd take Valium, too. It said take one every seven hours. I took seven every one, because I had dyslexia. <laughs> they called those things mother little helpers. And then I learned later they were called forget-me-nots, <laughs> because I couldn't remember anything the next day. So I drugged these kids through a little bit of pain, just a little bit of pain, and divorce. Uh, My mom and dad had since moved down to Fort Myers, Florida, and they called me up on the phone and they said, Gail, won't you come down here, get a new life, new beginning, new start. And the word new sounded good to me because I always was looking for something new, you know. If I can just do this or if I just had this or if I just had that, life will be better. Florida sounded good. The ocean, sand. You know, mom and dad. And they were good people. They lived in a little uh, mobile home down there and they made some room for me and my kids. Valerie was probably almost a year old sitting in Sitting in her playpen. She couldn't sit up yet. Because I laid her down with her bottle all the time. She got on my nerves, you know. So she laid down in the playpen all the time. When I got her to Florida, my mom knew there was something wrong. So she started sitting my daughter up. And she taught her how to sit up and hold a bottle. She taught her how to eat. And she taught her how to say words. Because she was just shoved in a corner. I had other responsibilities. So I took that geographical change, and I took me with me, and I was the same person. Nothing changed about me. And I went down there, and I got me this job. See, I had worked for the FBI, so I had a pretty good resume. I hadn't been arrested or nothing, so it looked good. I could put a suit on and and manipulate my way into a position. So I got a job working in Fort Myers, Florida, for a, a judge down there, just being a clerical person, and I felt real good about myself. I knew, I knew now life was going to be good. I was going to be a good mom. I always had good intentions because I heard somebody say tonight or last night or this morning that we always loved our kids. I was a bar person that sat at the bar and told you how much I love my children. But if they call, don't tell them I'm here. You know, that was me, but I'm telling you, I loved my children. I just didn't know how to stop drinking or drugging. I didn't have a problem. So I moved down to Fort Myers, Florida, and I met him. And he was a, he was a lawyer, and he had some money, and he whined and dined to me for a little bit. My dad told me he looked like my father. He said, Gail, he looks old enough to be your dad. I said, no, he doesn't. You know how we just have that delusion? You know, and I just thought he was just, I thought he he cared about me, you know. And we went through a few years down there in Fort Myers, Florida, and he provided me with babysitting service, and he provided me with a lot of alcohol, and he provided me with a lot of drugs. But see, he took me places. He took me to New Orleans and Arizona, and the whole time my life was deteriorating, my kids were spending Friday through Sunday at the babysitter, and then it was Friday through Monday, and then it was Friday through Tuesday. And then when Tuesday came around, I forgot where they were. So I'd be running around that low-income apartment house that they let me move in and paid me $8 a month to live there, trying to find my kids, because I couldn't find them. I remember Valerie got so sick down there one time. I couldn't find her. Anyway, that's how my life was there. I found a drug down there in Fort Myers, Florida. And they called it cocaine. And they told me that if I do cocaine, it'll keep me up. (laughs) And I could drink more. Because that was one of those lightweight drinks, man. I'd I'd drink a few beers. I'd be, like, tired. (laughs) So I just found this other stuff, and there I go. Give me another 12-pack. Give me another whiskey. give me another Shawlis, give me that tequila. And that, that became my second source, you know. Every time I took that first drink, it led me to places that I never thought I'd ever go. I ended up um, using a lot of that stuff, because he provided it. And I ended up drinking a lot and drugging a lot. I lost that job at that courthouse. I got a job at a bank and I lost that job at the bank and I lost that other job and the other job and the other job. And before you know it, the only priority that I had in my life was drinking and drugging. My son, who was now five years old, was walking my daughter who was three to daycare. I remember one day I sent him over to the store in his underwear and he was totally humiliated. And I said, you go to the store and get a box of cereal and a gallon of milk and bring it back. And that's what he did. And I used to think my life was manageable when we had a loaf of bread and a gallon of milk in the refrigerator. And I used to think my life was manageable when the kids had sheets on the bed. And I used to think my life was manageable if they weren't starving. Because I justified my drug and alcohol use for a long time. Time went on and I couldn't snort that cocaine anymore. And I became an intravenous drug user Some people call us junkies And that's what I did I got real sick down there in Fort Myers, Florida And I needed another drug addict to tell me that And uh, Children's services knocking on my door I don't have a problem Got my first DUI down there So I had my uh, lawyer friend So I was something, you know I had a lawyer friend So he got me of that DUI And had a couple little fender benders too Because when you're drunk It's hard to drive I remember I used to do one of these And if I just could do that I was fine <laughs> You know, you take that hand over your eye Then you see double So I just used to hold one hand over my eye And I used to get real poor Because I didn't have no money So the way I made my money Is I'd go into the bar And I'd drink lots of whiskey And when I did that I won the wet t-shirt contest, <laughs> that's how I made some money, you know, I was a wet t-shirt contest person. <laughs> God, I can see that now, <laughs> Pull my skirt up and I'll win. <laughs> <laughs> Things have changed, gravity, <laughs> I, I don't know where that came from either, it's getting too personal. Anyway, uh, I got real sick down there and this guy said, you know Gail, you're looking really sick." I said, well I might be sick, okay. What well, do you got? <laughs> Let's do something. So anyway, I uh decided I'd go check in at this uh um free clinic. Cause I had a medical card and they let you do that. They take good care of you. You can go to the dentist, take your kids, see your life's manageable, you got a medical card. <laughs> take your kids to the dentist. And you feel good about yourself because they got their checkup. Feel like a good mom. And I used to go to the doctor on occasion, so I went to the doctor and he said you got hepatitis A, B. I'm like, what's well, hepatitis A, B? Because I lied. I said I've never, I don't drink that much, and I don't drug that much, so I don't know where I got this. Must have been from working in the restaurant business or something. You know, you get it from germs. So they put me in the hospital because I was really sick, and I stayed there a couple weeks, and they found some other, uh, other things about me that were wrong too, because I became very promiscuous, and I was really sick. And I used uh, the abortion clinic for birth control. And I'm not proud of that, but that's what I did. And I, I didn't know how to manage my life. I didn't know how to do anything right, what normal people did. I used to walk past your house and think I want to live like you. You know, I used to see cars in the driveway and say, I want one someday. I used to see women walking down the street with their children and say, I want to be like her. I just couldn't do it. So I got sick, and they told me I had this Hepatitis A, B thing, and I'm like, all right, I can deal with that. So I dealt with that, and one day, I can remember, I was out at this guy's house, and I called my dad, and I said, Dad, this man is offering me the world. And my dad said, It's all according to what your world consists of. I said, Well, it consists of me, Jeremy, and Valerie. He said, well, then he's not offering you the world, because where are your kids? Okay. I had a brother, uh, my oldest brother came down to Florida about that time to visit with my mom and dad, and they drugged me over there, because I was embarrassed to see anybody. I was sick. I didn't know I was sick, but I was sick. And I ended up over in my mom's kitchen, and I saw that coffee pot, And I saw that gallon of milk sitting in the middle of the table and I was thinking to myself, how can I get that coffee cup filled with a cup of coffee and the gallon of milk poured in it so I can just have a cup of coffee? And I couldn't do it because I had this thing called the (laughs) shakes. And finally my brother came over and he uh, helped me out and he gave me a cup of coffee and he said, you're going back to Ohio with me. I said, okay, I was looking pretty good then You know, I weighed at least 98 pounds I got on the Greyhound bus With my two kids and two pillows And we came back to Ohio He opened his house to me And he said Got one rule No more cocaine You can drink And you can smoke pot But We're not going to tolerate any cocaine in this house. (laughs) I'm like, okay. Guess what I learned? I learned that when I pick up that first drink, it takes me right back where I started. So anyway, life went on and I had my son and my daughter up here and my little boy's getting bigger and he's getting bigger and he's getting bigger and he's five and he's seven and he's nine and he's ten. And, and Valerie is four and five and six and eight. And life's still doing the same deal to me. If you were a single parent, you'd drink too. If you had to do what I got to do, you'd drink too. If you had my nerves, you'd take Valium too. You know, if you got an achy shoulder, you'd probably do some Vicodin. I did it all whenever I could, however I could. I started my first uh series of treatment. I can't remember. I'm not one of those good people that come up and tell you dates because I don't know them. But it was somewhere in my life. (laughs) And I went into my first treatment center and uh, I did that 30-day thing and there was some people in there didn't have babysitters. And there was a man in there couldn't read. So I showed him how to read. And I babysat for your kids when you went to the meetings. And then I went to bed and I got my 30-day coin and I left. I heard him say something About sponsorship Big book You know Some meetings And Okay I did the 30 day Came back out I was at the uh, East Fork Lake One time My kids were now seven I was living In Mobile Home Park Had a 1974 Maverick That every time You had to start it You had to do it With the screwdriver Lift the hood up If you had a car Like that You'd drink too (laughs) I had an excuse For everything But anyway uh I had this little car and I went to, uh, the beach one day, East Fork Lake, later to become my home. Um, went there sitting on the beach one day, it was May of some year, don't remember. Met a man, married him in July, two months. See, I was tired of raising those kids all by myself. You know, I was tired of it. So I met this man. Soon to find out he was my cousin. <laughs> Married Yeah. I tell my girls, uh, you're full bread, you know? <laughs> Ain't nothing mixed up about you. We all come from the same line. <laughs> True. They got the same, same great-great-grandparents on both sides. We go to the family reunion where the only one is there, you know? <laughs> wow. I was wondering why every time I went somewhere with my ex-husband everybody say, he looks like your brother. <laughs> really? <laughs> we quit saying that. We swept that underneath the carpet. You know. My daughter's 16 today. She, oh, this year, she told me it's the first time she ever knew that her uh, dad was her uncle-cousin slash something. You know. <laughs> we ain't figured it out yet, but we will. We might not. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> anyway, li- life's good, you know. And, uh, anyway, uh, I got these two little girls, you know, and I married this man with these beautiful, 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 beautiful daughters. Linda knows my daughters. She's had some experience with them. Um, Beautiful girls. Love them. I forgot that I had really drugged these two little girls through hell, too. I, uh, my life was a spiral, you know. All the way down. The minute you get down, you get up. You get down, you get up. I divorced him. He divorced me. It was mutual. He worked third shift. I worked first. Let's get a divorce, you know. I don't see you. So we divorced, and I had a little house. Disease progressing. Drinking. Drugging. Didn't do any of that other stuff, though. Remember, I wasn't allowed to. Got a uh, foreclosure. Got me a house. My brother... My brother. Got me an apartment. We got evicted. I'm going backwards now. When I lived with my brother, I got me an apartment. Got evicted. Got me another apartment. Got evicted. Got married. Got a house. Got a divorce. Got a foreclosure. Lost that house. Got my 401k from a company I used to work for. Spent it in five days. You know where it took me. I was getting sick. Went into another treatment center. Did a 30-day. Got my coin. Babysat the kids. To hold something, heard something about a Big Book. Sponsorship. Life was bad. And, uh, I got me another apartment. Moved in with a man, had four kids. We had eight now. Had a van that said eight is enough. Remember Doug? Doug. He was a good man. I owe him an amends. I haven't seen him yet. He ran from me, buddy. <laughs> I, uh, was a tornado running through people's lives. Sometimes I feel like I still am, you know. I ain't that good yet. But I'm a lot better. Um, Four kids, back into the apartment, lost the house, evicted, lost the job, evicted. Treatment center, 30 day, 60 day, 90 day. A lot of treatment. It's funny because I look back on it now, treatment became a uh, solution Creditors Eviction notices Where are you going to go Treatment, I got a problem I got a problem, maybe they can help me I remember uh being in treatment one time And uh, I said, I can't believe my mom's not bringing me clean clothes And my counselor said, why would your mom bring you anything, you know? You don't deserve anything. All of a sudden we get sick and we get in treatment. And we expect everybody to come take care of us. You know, we expect that. Where's my quarters for the phone calls? I still smoke, don't you know? Where's my cigarettes? I always felt like people owed me something. Cause if you had my life. But anyway, uh, life went on and there was a summertime when I ran out of references, and I ran out of uh, application information. I ran out of deposits, and I ran out of family members. Since that time, I I forgot a little story about uh, my brother that was real close to me, the one that was like 17 months after me. He was killed in a car accident by a drunk driver, and I swore to God I would never do that, you know. So by that time I had lost two brothers, two members of my family, and I'm like, if you had to go through that, you'd drink too. So that was another excuse. But it was a summertime and we had nowhere else to go and no more, uh nobody to take us in. You know? Nobody cared anymore. So we pitched a tent over at East Fork Lake and we lived over there. And I told my kids, we're camping. We're just going camping. And they were fine for the first two weeks, in the first three weeks. And then we had to move from loop to loop, because you only got to stay there two weeks, and then you had to move to another loop. So our address was Loop C, East Fork. And I, I tell you, talk about insanity of this disease. I had a living room, a dining room. I had a refrigerator. I had it all right there at East Fork Lake, buddy. I had no problem. I didn't have a drinking problem What are you talking about Broke my ankle over there So the Vikings helped You know So we lived over there At East Fork Lake And that following year We lived at the homeless shelter And I can remember uh, The counselor there The lady that ran The homeless shelter She said How does it make you feel To know your kids Are so happy to be here and I'm like I don't know You think they're happy to be at the homeless shelter? But they were, because they had a bed, and they had meals, they had a roof, they had things that I didn't know how to provide them with anymore. My disease uh, had totally absorbed me. In and out of treatment, three months, nine months, or excuse me, three months, 90 days, Two months Six months Saved my life I remember that one I uh ended up uh, Losing everybody that ever cared about me My brother-in-law was a wonderful man And he said I got a house over in Dayton, Kentucky That you can rent And I get your child support check every week Because if I don't get it straight to me I know you're not going to pay the rent So he allowed me to uh, move into this house over in Dayton, Kentucky. My oldest children, my son, uh, i got to remember this little thing too because it plays an important part. My son was growing up and he was 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 17, 18, hair under his armpits. He was a man. And I'm still doing the same thing that I used to do. I moved into this house over at uh, Dayton, Kentucky, and I had to work for a living. I didn't have a car because I had had my fourth DUI and had totaled that station wagon that my mom gave me when my dad passed away to take care of, and I didn't take care of it. I totaled it, so I moved uh, over on the bus line. I got a job working at a hotel called the Cincinnati Hotel, and I felt important there. I was 98 pounds, and I moved into this little house with my daughters, and I spent a lot of time with the babysitters. What I look back and see what happened is my life started doing the same thing it did again. I was going through another set of kids, because I had already destroyed the life of the two older ones, and now I was working on the life of two more. And that's exactly what I was doing. I moved into that house, and I had to catch that bus. And you have to be there at six o'clock in the morning because I serve breakfast. Long walk down that hill. Drop those girls off at the babysitter in the morning, walk down at the bottom of the hill, go into this Ohio station. I needed something to keep me up so I bought those little white things. And I had those little mini white things. And I started out with about five or six or seven or eight or nine or ten or twenty or thirty. And before you knew it I was doing about a hundred of them a day. I couldn't poop. <laughs> You know, I could not pee. And my body was dying. Like Billy said today, uh, what was most important to me was it wasn't about the physical death that I was experiencing. It was about the spiritual pain that I was going through. I couldn't look at myself in the mirror anymore. And I couldn't answer the phone. I couldn't answer my door. I couldn't pay my bills. I couldn't listen to my mother on the other end of the phone. I couldn't accept help from my sister anymore because I didn't deserve it. And I was just dying. I uh, couldn't make it up that hill after I got off work at 2.30 in the afternoon. So I had some friends over there at Smitty's Bar. And they'd take me up the hill. That's all I had to do was get off the bus and go to Smitty's. And I can remember by this time in my life, the only way that I could light a cigarette was to go into the bathroom. It was like premeditated. I had to plan it from the time I got on the way to the bus. And I uh, would think about what I got to do when I get there. And I'd go in the bathroom and I'd light that first cigarette like that because I didn't want you to see me shake so bad. So I'd come out of the bathroom with that cigarette in my hand, and my Budweiser was sitting there, and I'd take that drink of Budweiser and be like, yeah, I'm okay now. Give me another Budweiser. And my kids call. Don't tell them I'm here. 4 o'clock, the kids call. Don't tell them I'm here. Call that babysitter and tell them I'm going to be late. 7 o'clock, whoop, there he is. Hmm, there's my man. Something to keep me up. Let's do it. 12 o'clock, 1 o'clock, oh, I need some volume, bring me down. More medicine I took, the sicker I got. That's what it says in the big book. And that's what I did. So I could start that day over about 4.30 in the morning, drag those kids out of bed, throw them off the babysitter, Get do those hundred things, take that bus ride, drink that beer, do those volumes, vicious circle. When I was down in Fort Myers, Florida, I spent a lot of time in the bathroom telling my kids I'd be out in a minute. I'll be out in a minute. They grew up knocking on my bathroom door, because my sickness got so bad that I couldn't get out of the bathroom. And when I moved over in Dayton, Kentucky, I found myself sitting in the bathroom with my two little girls, knocking on the door, and I said, I'll be out in a minute, twenty years later. Every treatment center I'd ever been, they told me about this hepatitis C I had, and I lied. I knew I had hepatitis C, you know. Don't bug me about that. I know I got it. Treatment one, treatment two, treatment three. Y'all been telling me I got it. I've had it for 20 years. I know I have that. So anyway, uh, I'm sitting in that bathroom one day, and I'm looking at myself, and that uh, drug of choice, so to speak, came back to me. I'm sitting in the bathroom, and I'm doing the same thing I used to do. And I became that junkie one more time. And I looked at my kids, and I couldn't open the door. And I called that ex-husband that resentment I had, and I said, "I need some help." And he said, "I'll be right over." I had chicken wings in the refrigerator, so my life was manageable. I had tip money every day, so they ate. You know I had money to pay a babysitter, too. My life was manageable. But at this point in time, something happened to me that day, I knew I was dying. I knew I was spiritually dying. I heard a lady in the lead say the other night that we have a spiritual illness and the only solution is a spiritual solution. And I was spiritually bankrupt and spiritually dead. And I called him and he came over and got me and he took me over to St. Luke Hospital and I was in that psych ward and I loved it. I had a friend named Patty, she rocked all the time. And I wanted to rock like Patty, you know? And they gave me the medication, I was walking and bouncing off the walls and I knew I had it's right like where I needed to be. And I remember calling my mom and she said, Yeah, you need to get out of there. I said, No, I think it's sorry. Well, about three days later, you know, they handed me my bag of pin and my value, and they said, You need to go home now. So, okay. So they gave me my medication. See, I didn't have a problem with alcohol or drugs at that time. They didn't know I did anyway, and I manipulated my way right out of there and I went home and three days later I'm back in the bathroom saying I'll be out in a minute. Kids knocking on the door. So I called my ex-husband again, and uh, he came and got me, took me back to that sideboard, and that's where my journey of recovery began that day, May 16th, 1998. Through the Kalanopans coloni- p- c- out the window, don't know why. Through the volume out the window, don't know why. He took me to a place called the Women's Recovery Addiction Program, the Rap House. Got some rap girls here. Yeah. Rap House saved my life. I went in there and uh, two weeks after I was there, somebody said, Gail, do you know you got two different shoes on? I looked on at my feet and I did. And they thought I had one leg shorter than the other. So I there, I was like, crazy. I phased up, phased up in rap, and I had these wonderful people that loved me. And uh, they told me some stories about my first two weeks there. I don't know, I don't remember too many, but they said I did dishes and stuff like that. No, I don't remember too much of that. But they told me I had to do this thing called the Lifeline. And it's really, really a wonderful story, because uh, God is very good and very powerful. And what he did that day is uh he came into my life and he intervened into my disease and he said, I'm tired of messing around with you, girl. <laughs> And I was like a a wet washcloth, just totally drained of everything, and they just threw me in there. And he said, I'm going to save your life whether you want to be saved or not. And they said, you got to write a lifeline. And I said, well, where do I begin? They said, at the beginning. And I said, my name is Gloria Gale Gregor. I was born May 3rd, 1956. This is the story of my life. And I wrote that story down, and I wrote everything that ever happened to me in my life. And I wrote everything that ever happened to you. And I never left anything out. And it was my turn to read that story in group that day. I had probably seven or eight or ten or twelve pages. I don't really know. And there was a bunch of women that were in that group. And uh, Miss Shirley was over here. And she was a very spiritual woman. And I needed her in my life. And I had another lady over here, Miss Carol. And she was there to help me, too. And she put her hand on my shoulder. She said, it's your turn to read. So I started reading this lifeline thing. and And I started reading it. And I started reading it. And I started reading it. And I looked up in the room, and there wasn't anybody there anymore. All those women had left. And Miss Shirley was over here praying, and Miss Carol was over here. And and I stood up and I said, Are my feet on the ground? And that's real. Because they weren't. (laughs) That's called a spiritual experience. (laughs) And my feet were not on the ground. And from that moment on, I felt like a featherweight, and God had taken every bit of the garbage and the guilt and the shame that I had experienced and removed it. And he said to me, do you want to live or do you want to die? And I wanted to live. My son came to see me about four months into sobriety, and he's standing out on the steps and he's looking at me, giving me some eye contact. So I hadn't looked at my children in five or six years. I couldn't. I stole from them. I cheated them. I hurt them. I couldn't look at them. That day I turned around and I looked at my son and I said, what are you looking at? And he said, you look so awake. And I said to Nancy, I said, what did he mean by that? She said, you've been sleeping for 25 years. See, he seen something in me that was new and fresh and a beginning. That was in May of nineteen ninety eight. I got to go to my daughter's high school graduation that same month. She graduated at age eighteen. My son went. My two daughters went with me. This lady kept coming in on Mondays and I was desperate. Some people say, you got to be real picky about your sponsor. Make sure you got something in common with her. Make sure you like her. You know, be picky. Well, when I got here, God knew not to let me think, you know. (laughs) Because I'd have picked the wrong daggone person. There's a lady that's here today. Her name's Nancy D. She's my sponsor. She walked in uh, that Monday night, and I was sitting on the steps, and I asked her to be my sponsor, and she's been my sponsor ever since. I've never had anybody love me like she loves me. I've never loved anybody like I love her. That's the gift of this program. So I went through that treatment center, and I got my graduation thing. I was feeling good, and life was good. I said, what do I do now? Nancy says, "You, you stay close to the rap house. So I stayed close to the rap house. I got me an apartment right down the street on 19th and Madison, somewhere down there, and it was way too expensive. (laughs) You know, it was crazy. First of all, I had to get a job because I had phased up phase three. It's like, i got to get a job. And I'm not sure if Nancy and Tom remember this, but they were taking to a meeting. I'm sitting in the back seat of their car, and Nancy, I said, where am I going to work? I don't want to take the bus line because I don't want to have to get up at 5.30 and go to work because i got to be at work at 8 o'clock. She says, "Well, work right there," and that's a place called Rocky Chevrolet on um, Madison Avenue in Covington, Kentucky. I said, "Okay." So the next day, I walked in there because I could walk there from the rap house, and I walked in there and I said, "Are you hiring anybody?" Didn't tell them I was in the rap house, and they said, "Well, no, we don't really have any openings here for any clerical positions or anything like that. But you might sell cars." I've never sold cars before, but I'll give it a try. So see, the reason why I took that job, first of all, was a job. I could walk to it, and second of all, they pay you out a, a weekly check whether you sold anything or not, and then after you started selling, they take it back from you. It's like, okay, that's steady money, you know? So so I went in, I got that job selling cars at Rocky Chevrolet, and uh, I started working the steps of alcoholics Anonymous, and I started praying, and I started beginning to live. I even, uh, Nancy told me, I said to her one time, I said, do I dress up when I go to meetings? And she said, yeah, you do, you show people that the program works. See, when I met Nancy, she had her fingernails painted, her hair done, she looked nice, and I didn't. And she taught me how to look good. She taught me, she taught me the things that I'm supposed to do to show people that this program does work. And that's what I've done. I've followed her, and I've watched her. And she's a perfect example of Alcoholics Anonymous. She sponsors a few people that I truly love. I love Linda, she gives me a hard time though, you know. Does she give anybody else a hard time? <laughs> you okay. So anyway, uh I started working at this Rocky Chevrolet place and next thing you know, you know, I'm uh my, my ex husband had my two daughters and next thing you know I started setting a little goal. I want my girls back living in the same home with me. So, there was a job opening at a place called Joseph Chevrolet over on Montgomery Avenue, and the deal was, you get a car. I'm like, okay, I'll take that job. So I got a demo. you know. So here I am cruising around, you know, like a year of sobriety, driving a brand new car, you know, got my girls back, got me a little apartment over in somewhere, up in the Bluffs, way too expensive, couldn't afford it, you know, had people to help me, man. Mike, Mike has always been a wonderful help in my sobriety. I don't know what I'd done without him, but um, I knew this was too expensive, so I moved back. My goal was to get back over on the east side of town. So I did that, and I got me a little apartment, and I remember one day, I was working at Joseph Chevrolet, and I was pretty daggone good at what I did, and the only reason I was pretty good at what I did is because I was practicing the principle of Alcoholics Anonymous in all my affairs, and I was getting on my knees, and I was praying, and I wasn't drinking, and I was working the steps, and I was doing the best to my ability. And I did not want to live like I had lived. So all of a sudden, this girl comes in. She goes, "You know, they're hiring over at this place called Colrain RV over on Colrain Avenue in Cincinnati." I said, "Okay, what do they do over there?" And she said, "They sell campers." So I said, "Okay." So I went over there for this job interview, and they had never had a woman salesperson over there, and that was uh, five years ago. I started in October, and I'm still there today. And I went in and interviewed with the two men, and, and they said, uh, Have you had ever had any experience camping? <laughs>
1: and you know, I
0: am an expert at camping. I can cook anything on a campfire. I love to camp. And I told them I had plenty of experience in camping, and, and they hired me. And uh, the first year I was there working for Coleraine RV, uh, I learned early on alcohol synonymous first, God first, AA, anything you put in front of AA you're going to lose anyway, okay. I want to live, I don't want to die, keep it simple. So I started working at this place called Coleraine RV and I started selling campers. My second year there, I was doing pretty good. Third year there as top salesperson. Top saleswoman. Third year there, top saleswoman. Fourth year there, top saleswoman. And you know, the reason why I share that is because it has nothing to do with me. Because if I still were the same person I was when I came into these rooms, I wouldn't be working at Coleraine RV. I wouldn't be the mother I am. I wouldn't be the sister I am. I wouldn't be the daughter I am. It's only by the grace of a loving God, and I'll call it synonymous, is why I'm here today. So I have a great job. I got that house I dreamed of having. I don't sit in bars anymore, I change my music. I love God, I pray, I try to be useful to him and to others. About a year ago, sitting in the meeting saying, wait a minute, Gail, you're going around bragging about what Gail, God's done for you. It's time to do something for God. So that's what I try to do today. It's all about what can I do for Him. And what really happens is when I do something for God, I'm usually doing something for somebody else. And that's pretty cool. And at night, Dick Hedger taught me this one. He said, get on your knees and ask God to treat you tomorrow like everybody treated, like you treated everyone today. That's deep. Cause some days we don't treat everybody right. So, I try minute by minute, hour by hour, step by step, to treat everybody like God will treat me tomorrow, and I don't always do it right. I tell you what I got to walk my daughter down the aisle last year for her wedding, and i got to I got to financially pay for her to have the most beautiful cinderella wedding that you have ever seen and guess what else I got. My son walked down with me. And my daughters were the junior bridesmaid and the bridesmaid. And another gift that I got in sobriety is I get to set an example for my young teenagers who are working on their lead. You know? Another gift I got in sobriety is I went to that liver specialist. And he said, we're going to do a biopsy and we're going to start you on that interferon stuff. I knew I had hepatitis C. And he brought me back in about six weeks later and he said, sit down. And I sat down, and he said, this, this you're not the first person this has happened to, and you probably won't be the last, but you don't have any signs of have hepatitis C anymore. Well, I don't trust God. So I said, I want to step opinion. Because I didn't trust God. And see, God removed that from me. Why? so I could be here today to carry the message, so I can tell you that Alcoholics Anonymous works, so I can carry the message from God to you, through me to you, to tell you that he's taught me how to love, to tell you that I want to be loved, to tell you thank you for letting me be who I am, and and thanking God for letting me accept you for who you are. I've never had so much joy in all my life Tom Dorgan, <laughs> Tom Dee said, just sit down, because you're going to go on a journey of a lifetime. And he told me that about four years ago. And now I know what he meant. And guess what else they tell me? It's only just begun. Whoa. Whoa. So, you know, I get to stack around here tonight. I get to look at these colors, the new pair of glasses. I get to eat good food. I get to love good people. And I get to stay sober one more day only by the grace of a loving God and the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. I thank you for listening to me, and I thank you especially for asking me to be here. And I really, really, really love my life today. Thank you.